Now we start swipe right. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, when you have no idea what you're about to get into. <laughs> Today we're talking about the life and death power of sex and romance. If you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to uh, the book of Exodus. That's the second book in the Bible. Starts with Genesis, and then we get right into Exodus. And you can use a physical Bible or you can use a digital Bible. And if you don't have uh, your own Bible right now, that's a problem that we can help you solve in a little bit. We can, we can help you with that as well. But for right now, you don't need to worry because we're going to put the notes, we're going to put all the verses up on these screens here uh, or, or right about here, depending on how you're engaging with us today. Uh, we want you to be included. We want you to be involved. We want you to be an active participant and partner. So I just want to give you a, a little hint of where we're going to go in this series. So this is the start. There are uh, five episodes. And we're praying that through the weeks of this series that we will see God help us to regret-proof our marriage beds and our deathbeds. Would, wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to get to your deathbed and find out as you lie there and you have your final moments before life on this earth ends, and as you look back over everything there, that you're not just thinking about everything that you wish you had done differently? Wouldn't you love it if you could live carefully, wisely in the present, that you would arrive at a future that when you get there, you would like what you get because of how you made wise choices, how you were skillful in your living while you're here. We want to pray, you know, heaven help us, regret-proof, and only God can do that. Regret-proof our deathbeds, regret-proof our marriage beds, so that those of us who are single right now, that we would get to our marriage bed potentially one day and we would arrive there and we would not have to look back on and have regret over what we did relationally, what we did romantically in our lives before that moment. And for those of us that are married, here's some great words for you. From this day forward, that we would live in such a way as to not heap regret on our marriage beds. Amen? And that's the language that we're going to use as we go forward. From this day forward. That's the real heartbeat of this series. Because you know what? I can't do anything about what I have already done. And neither can you. And so I'm, I'm not here to heap shame on you. I'm not here to rub your nose in the carpet of all the stuff that you did wrong. I'm here to fight for your future from this day forward, and it can be different. Now, we're going to jump into uh, Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Moses has just successfully led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They've left the evil, mean, nasty, cruel Pharaoh behind. God has parted the Red Sea. He sealed the escape plan. And that brings us quickly to Exodus chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Verse 23. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And Marah means bitter. Well done, naming committee, right? Probably long meetings about that. Bitter water means salty water. 
And the people obviously were bitter and a little bit salty about it as well. Verse 24, and the people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink, Moses? And so he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he cast the tree into the waters and the waters were made sweet. Sweet water just means not salty. And there he made a statue and an ordinance for them and there he tested them. 26, and he said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord, your God, the Lord your God, and you do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. That's another reminder for us about that Sinaiic, the Mosaic, the covenant given to Moses that the Old Testament is famous for. The I will, no, if you will, then I will. If you obey these commands, then I will protect you and fight for you. I guess you could say, if you would swipe right in his sight. This is the covenant before the covenant that Jesus sets up that changes everything. But God identifies himself here as the Lord who heals you. That's how God chose to reveal himself. That's what he wanted you to know about him. So I am the God who just saved you at Passover. I am the God who saved you by parting the Red Sea. I'm the God who provides for you manna from heaven, food for you to eat. And I am the Lord who heals you. Episode number one is called Water Everywhere and Not a Drop to Drink. And my dad used to quote to us all the time the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Water, water everywhere and yet the boards did shrink. Wouldn't it be the worst place in the world to die of dehydration? The middle of the ocean, surrounded by water. And that's kind of the predicament that the nation of Israel was in on this day. They had just come from the Red Sea, one of the saltiest bodies of water on earth, and they passed through it, seeing all this salty water that they couldn't drink. And they were thirsty because all they had with them is what they had carried out of Egypt when they left. And now they come to this water, Mara. And I'm sure that, that when they saw this, you know, off in the distance a little bit over there, um, that they were excited because the text says that they had walked three days from one of the saltiest bodies of water on earth, the Red Sea, to get to Mara through the wilderness. And so they walk through the dry country and they're parched and they're dry. They're thirsty. They're dehydrated. The sun is beating down. Their lips are chapped and sunburned. Can you feel that kind of a space? And now, finally, someone sees it. Right off in the distance, and a scout comes back and he says, I found water. And everyone's excited. They're singing, oh, you're going to have us. And it's just a good feeling, right? And so they get their minds in this kind of emotion and they move towards there and they get up. And I'm sure that there was people maybe like me who would have just run and just dove right in. Let's enjoy the water. And they're lapping it up. And as quickly as they're drinking it, they're spewing it back out. Bitter. Undrinkable. This is terrible, Moses. We can't drink this, Moses. And they're thinking, we know there's not water back there. Back that way is three days ago we walked away. And I don't know what's that way farther, but it doesn't look promising. And so now they're discouraged. They're surrounded by water. 
and there's not a drop to drink. And I wonder if that's not just an appropriate analogy for us to begin our dialogue on how to navigate our way through our romantic decisions in this world, in this culture that we're living in, because there certainly is a lot of sexuality. Sexuality everywhere. And with the proliferation of technology, there's a whole lot of swiping going on. And apparently the average North American, I'm sorry, this is going to hurt, the average North American checks their phone 150 times a day. 150 times a day. That's about once every six minutes. And what about, how does that affect what comes to romance? And what about what, how that comes to sex? And what about how that, what does that do to our dating? And, and it used to be that you'd, you know, meet somebody in a bar. you meet somebody at a restaurant. Maybe you'd meet somebody at a wedding. Maybe you could meet somebody at church even. What a novel concept that would be. Where do you go to meet the kind of person that you want to date that will become a good grandfather? Where, where do you go to find someone who will become a good wife? And I think most people now are not thinking about that. They're trying to meet people who are hot. We're not, we're not thinking about meeting someone and thinking the follow-through. We're not thinking about 50 years down the road till death do us part. Now, <coughs> I think that as a society, technology is really changing that. We're thinking about dating apps and dating sites and eHarmony and Match.com. But it's, it's gone beyond that. Now it's gone mobile, so you don't even need to sit at your computer. Now there's an app for that. And you have OkCupid and you've got Hinge and you've got Happen and the most famous of them all, Tinder. And Tinder is the app that introduced swiping to meeting people, swiping to sort through the crowd. So basically the app brings up a picture of someone who they think might be uh, aligned with you, and you glance at that photo, and the question now basically becomes junior high. You go back to right away, is she hot? Is he hot? It's a superficial thing. It doesn't tell you anything about their character. It doesn't tell you anything about their responsibility. Are they lazy? What kind of family background do they have? Are they manipulative? Are they honest? Are they nice? What's their moral compass like? You just decide, are they hot? or not. And that little brief bio that they fill in is a great place for lying. And so now you are basically making a snap judgment almost entirely on your gut instinct, physical impression. Yes, no. Swipe left on their face. If no, swipe right on their face. If yes. Is this catching on? Tinder has now passed its trillionth swipe. A trillion plus times now, people are swiping about it. And Vanity Fair um, tells us a story about our society. What does this look like in cities that are uh, common, like Toronto or Los Angeles, Vancouver, New York City, Montreal, Las Vegas, places where young professionals are going, these young career-minded people. They don't really want a relationship. They say they don't have time for them. They're not really wanting marriage. And maybe it's because they're disillusioned by seeing what their parents' marriage not work out. And they're like, you know what, just, just forget about that. I don't want any of that. I'm focusing on my career. So I'm focusing on my law career. I'm focusing on my design thing that I got going on. But they still want sex. They just don't want to get into and then stay in a relationship. And so they'll fire up Tinder. And they said, this, the quotes from them say, I, I could be sleeping with someone by midnight. Just a couple of drinks, fire it up, boom, boom, swipe, 
boom, boom, swipe. That's the chirp of a notification. I'm good to go. I can go meet some person, meet up with them, hook up by the end of the evening, and I can now do that two or three times a week. Here's how one girl in the article said it. Most guys are not interested in dating at all. They are interested in hitting it and quitting it. I can use Tinder to hit it and quit it. No strings attached. Casual encounters, it's as easy as calling an Uber. And this is the world that we're living in. And this is what technology is bringing our way. But it's not just dating apps. It's also pornography. Pornography, which is now streaming at the highest speeds possible into just about every device in our lives in this sex-saturated society. Just everything's gone naked. Getting it, moving towards it, implying it, adding it in. In USA Today, they said that the average age in America a child is first exposed to pornography is now age six. Inadvertently on the internet. They didn't mean to. Just, just click the wrong thing and then boom, this pop-up showed up in the window. 36% of the internet is pornography. At any given moment in our country, 1.7 million pornographic videos are being streamed. One out of three 13 to 14-year-old boys is a heavy porn user with the average watching 50 pornographic clips per week. There are porn detox camps for young adolescents who are addicted to these things, and they don't know how to stop even when they want to. And so this is the world that we are living in. What's a boy to do? What's a girl to do living in this world? Because we didn't choose when we arrived. No one ever got to ask when they would like to be born. You weren't in the womb trying to decide, would you like this year? Or maybe you're thinking uh, the Renaissance. Maybe I'll choose the Renaissance, right? That wasn't an option. So we are living in the world that we are living in. The question is, what are we going to do? And I'm not suggesting that we need to get the ax out, right? Destroy the laptop. We're not going to run away from, uh, from where we live and move into a fenced community together. We're not going to start um, taking down the curtains and making clothes out of them or making them out of burlap and start churning butter. No one's ever allowed to use the internet again. How are you going to reach the world if you're hiding yourself from the world? And that's why Church Online exists. That's why we're investing in it. We were born for such a time as this. We are here so that the world may know that God loves them and that Jesus died for them. So you've got to be in it to reach it. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that you stop the swiping. What I'm saying is that heaven help us to swipe right. And that's what we're praying. That God would help us to live in his sight in a world and in a way that's right, in this world that we are living in, that we would see all of these interruptions around us, that we would see them as opportunities. So before Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, 40 years prior to what we started with, Exodus, again, the second book of the Bible, Exodus 2, 12. So Moses looked this way and that way, and when, no one, when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
And I guess you could say he looked to the left and he looked to the right. He, should I swipe left? Should I swipe right? Should I do this? Should I do that? Because he had a great passion inside of him. And now his passion, his desire was anger and vengeance. But feelings are feelings. And acting out of impulse, acting out of feeling, acting out of desire, this is impacting our love life and all of our life. So feeling this way, looking this way, and that, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Why? Because no one, because he saw no one. Now, no one was there to stop him from doing what he felt looking this way and looking that. And what Moses failed to do, and what I'm going to suggest that we need to do, is to look up. Eyes up. Again, the coast is never clear. God is always watching, and he loves us. And he has a plan for us. And if we, living in the left-right world that we're living in, would look up, we'd be able to swipe right. And I'm praying that over your life. I'm praying that over your family's life. I'm going to pray that over your grandchildren's life. And and don't get me wrong, I'm praying that over my own heart too. I don't say this from a place of having everything all together and never struggling. I say this because I know me, and I know that I'm a hot mess too, and I need this. And I'm praying that God would take us together on this road trip and move our life forward. Heaven help us, right? So I realize that today might take you a little bit off guard. Because in your mind, in your frame of reference, pastors are people who kind of always imply that they're perfect and that they get up on a stage like this and they they start to answer questions passionately that no one's asking. And meanwhile, the real issues that plague our lives and are plaguing our families and destroying our marriages and wreaking havoc on our finances go completely unaddressed. But it ought not be. Because God has got a lot to say about the actual affairs that mess up our lives. God has something to say that is real, and it's relevant, and it's raw, and it's not just, thou shalt not. That's not actually how God wants us to think about life. It's not the beginning at all. And so the first thing that I want to say on the record, on behalf of God on this subject is, God wants you to have amazing sex. So there's that. What does God want from my, my sex life? He wants it to be amazing. He wants it to be fantastic because sex is a gift given by God and designed by God, a gift given to us to be enjoyed. It's actually the first gift. And, and God, in the Garden of Eden, he put Adam to sleep. And when Adam woke up, there she was, Eve. Hey, girl, you come here often? She's like, Actually, no, this is my first time. I just came out of your ribcage. It's awesome. And Adam liked what he saw. And we know that definitively because right there and right then, he wrote a poem. And here's how the poem went. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's pretty good. It's catchy. You'd remember that. And God wasn't offended. And God didn't interrupt the scene and say, stop, 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 Adam. Whoa, that's inappropriate. This whole Bible is child-friendly, okay? Get your mind out of the gutter. And God, from then until now, wants us to understand sex is a gift to be enjoyed. It's pleasurable and designed to be that way. 
And I don't think God is embarrassed or angry because we figured out a way to enjoy it. So sex is pleasurable. But sex isn't just pleasurable, it's also powerful. It's powerful. And that's why God told us not just that we can have it, but then how to use it. All powerful things are this way. So you go, let's just say you go and buy a chainsaw. Powerful, correct? And they're going to tell you how to use it. And there's going to be all these rules, and there's going to be procedures, and there's a manual, and it's covered in stickers. They're so afraid of lawsuits that they're going to tell you all this stuff about how to not use the chainsaw, and then how to use the safety features, how to use it safely. Now, do you immediately assume that the guy that you bought it from at Home Depot hates you? All you want to do is kill my fun. I'm just trying to have fun with my new chainsaw. No, they don't want you to chop your leg off. And you understand that the rules are there for good. And so why is it that the moment something God invented that he holds the patent on gets twisted so quickly into God wants you to have no fun? It's because the devil loves to act like it's his idea. And he's just twisting it and warping it because he's a thief a liar, and a murderer. And he's been that way since the beginning. And so God invented it, gave it to us. Why should we think the moment that he tells us how to use it, that for some reason he wants to keep us from fun? It's because the devil's a liar. God wants to tell us how to use it because sex is pleasurable, but it's also powerful. So at the very moment, very first moment, It was given to us. Right then and there, God spoke into how it should be used. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How easy is that? A man leaves his parents, a woman leaves her parents, coming together before God under this covenant of marriage to form a new family. Jesus actually quotes this. He refers back to this in Genesis, and then he uh, takes it a step farther. He says, um, so what God brought together, let no one draw apart. So it's called the marriage bed. And God does the introductions. He says, here's sex. And then he said, and let me tell you how to use it. Because fire is a wonderful thing. Fire can heat your home. Fire can keep you warm. Fire can cook your food, but you take fire out of its carefully designed arena in which it should be, and then what can happen? Well, let's just take a little fire and see what it looks like in the drapes. Let's take some fire and we're going to put it in the closet and close the door. It'll burn your house down. Your uh, sex feels good. It's powerful. It's pleasurable in the right context. So God said, here's sex. I invented it. Here's how to get the most out of it. Here's how to experience the best for your life. I don't have anything against you. I actually have so much that I want to give you. His rules are for a reason. And anytime you would hear him say don't, you can finish the sentence with don't hurt yourself. So big idea. Focus this right now. This is the next part. The problem isn't having a sex drive. 
but letting sex drive. Having a sex drive, well, that's how God made you, right? God made you with a sex drive. For every desire, there is a righteous fulfillment of that desire. God's not messing with you, all right? The problem is letting sex drive. And that's the kind of approach that our, our culture has towards sexuality, right? Whatever you feel, go ahead and do that, right? No one should ever say no. Don't restrain yourself. The idea that you, you have inside you, those, those longings, those inner longings, just follow your instincts and they'll never steer you wrong. Your instincts are just who you really are. Follow them. That's how people go to prison, right? Just do whatever you feel. That destroys marriages. Just, just take whatever you want. That's really bad advice. People love to teach that, there's, that there is no God and that we're all just animals. And, and when, but when human beings act like animals, we're appalled. What, what animals actually do? Just look at what animals actually do. Is that what you want people around you doing? Letting sex drive, that's a huge mistake. Don't take your hands off the wheel and let your desires dictate your decisions. What happens when we do that? What, what does that lead to down the road? Is that the kind of person that you want to be with forever? It feels good for now, but what kind of a person, what kind of a character are you growing? What does that grow up into? No, no deferring of gratification. If you have a desire, there is a righteous fulfillment for it. And when you take what God told you not to touch, you can prevent him from being able to give you what he wants you to have. And that's why the dad is coming back. And it tells us that those who do not have a history of pornography and those who do not have previous partners tend to report higher levels of sexual enjoyment within marriage. That's why women especially, women are twice as likely to experience pleasure and fulfillment in a committed relationship in the context of marriage than they would in a casual encounter. God is not trying to keep pleasure from you. He has so much for you. So you think about a uh, Time Magazine story in 2016, cover story. They were unraveling what pornography is, is doing to our culture, what, what it's doing to a whole generation of young people, men and women, who are saying that they're finding themselves having no ability to perform at all. Diminished passion, diminished response, diminished desire. Sexually active singles have higher rates of depression. Those consuming lots of pornography find that they have poorer health. They have poorer grades. It's killing a generation. And why does Time Magazine say that this is happening? They said that many of them, it's because their brain with the drug of pornography, that's a, it's, it's a, it is as addicting as heroin. It lights up the same sectors of the brain as drugs do. It's causing them to be conditioned to be only satisfied in a certain context. And a real, aging human right in front of them just doesn't do it anymore. Because their arousal addiction, it's been fed by uh, images moving and pulsing at the click of a button, a new person, at the click of an app, a new situation. One person. The context that God intended for us to be pleased in 
just cannot please us because we trained ourselves to not be able to enjoy it. Sex everywhere and not a drop to drink. Reminds me of pineapples. There's this great story about when Columbus sailed the ocean blue back in 1492. During the 1500s and the 1600s, something lit up everybody in Europe. It had been discovered in that new world and, oh, hey, what are we going to call this thing? Because they brought it back to Europe and it looked like a, well, it looks like a pine cone, but it's, but it's juicy like an apple. And so they said, let's call it a pineapple. And people were freaking out over this mysterious alien-like fruit. And they had to have them. But they were so hard to get because there were so few of them, and it was so hard to ship them over. And so it became the most glamorous fruit in the world. And at one point, this little bad boy was the high point of luxury and privilege, so much so that it informed even architecture. So you go to Europe and you'll see like St. Paul's Cathedral in London, you'll see a gigantic pineapple. They're involved in art in the era because they captured the mind of people. They were smitten with this fruit. There was actually one point when the taste of a pineapple in your mouth would be the defining moment of a person's entire life. And then get this. At its height, at the peak of the madness, if we adjust, if we adjust for inflation and currency, a pineapple would be sold for $8,000. People wouldn't even eat them, though. They would tell stories. You go, hey, I saw a pineapple once, guys. Yeah, I did. And they would display them until they rotted. They would have people over. They would have a house party, a viewing party, a watch party. Come on over. Look at my pineapple. But listen, the pineapple hasn't changed one bit. One, one observer uh, found today that they would say it's the least glamorous of fruit. But nothing about the pineapple has changed only our attitude towards it. And maybe that's the perfect picture of what's happened to sex today. Because as God designed it, we would see sex happen in our lives only in one very specific, very guarded, very controlled context, the marriage bed. And there would only be one person that you would be naked before and unashamed. Out of all the billions of people on this earth, you would be in a club so exclusive, it only has one member, you. And you two together would enjoy this treasure and this gift and this secret and this delight that like a fine wine would just get better with time. And you would never be there lying in bed comparing your partner's performance to the previous people that you'd been with. And you would never be fighting against that image is trapped in your mind that you looked at in grade six, but you just can't forget. And no one told you that it takes less than a second to look at an image, but it takes years to forget what you saw. It would be this wonderful thing that would be so exotic and so wonderful, so noteworthy, because it's so special. 
And the pineapple is now easy come, easy go. And if sex is everywhere, then no wonder we come up to situations where we feel like I'm surrounded by it, but none of it's fulfilling. None of it satisfies. There's a woman in the Bible who encountered just such a state. She'd been married five times, divorced five times. So she's disillusioned. Sex everywhere, husbands everywhere, but not a drop to drink. It would last for a while. It would be exciting for a while. But then eventually it would get stale. It gets old. And we don't know all of her backstory, and our job is not to judge her, but we know that she had come to a place where she was so disillusioned, disillusioned that she gave up on the notion of ever finding Mr. Right and decided to settle for Mr. Right now. So she shacked up with another guy, and she doesn't have a lot of friends. And, and, and as the story comes out, we're just so sad for her about the way her life has gone forward. And she met Jesus one day, and he showed her love. And he looked in her eyes and he spoke to her as though she had value because she does. And he cared about her as a daughter, as, as a child of the king, as someone created in the image of God. And he looked at her like he looks at you and he told her this in John 4, 13. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. You're drinking from the wrong water. It's bitter what you're experiencing, this bitterness, this disillusionment, it's because you're looking to something on this earth to do for you what it cannot do. Then he explains, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You're looking for something on earth to do for you. Well, only I can do for you, is what he said. And what I came here today to tell you is that the cross can make what is bitter become sweet. That's what God can do for you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you. That's why. God told Moses in response to the bitterness of the water at Marah, and this is so powerful, okay, because this is pointing to Jesus when he says this. The Lord showed him a tree, and, he, and, and when he cast it into the water that were bitter, they became sweet. Why a tree? Oh, that's because of Genesis 3. It's the knowledge of good and evil hanging on a tree. And that tree that Moses had that he threw into the waters was then pointing forward to another tree, a tree made of two pieces of wood assembled together in the New Testament that the Son of God would leave heaven, come down to earth and be nailed to and die upon. The cross can make what is bitter become sweet. And if you don't know Jesus, this series isn't just for you to have a better relationship or to try and date this way or to make these changes to things that you consume. This is for you to come to know Jesus. So God could put the tree in your life so what is bitter could become sweet. So where there is death, there could be life. Where there is sin, there can be forgiveness. Where there is hell, there can be heaven. So God could come into your life and forgive you and make you a new person and give you a new heart and give you a new start 
And then out of that relationship, not to earn his favor, but because you have it as a child of the king, you could approach sex and you could approach marriage and you can approach dating and approach relationships with a different new spirit, doing what is right in God's sight. He can help you to swipe right. Today's the day and now is the time. God loves you. He is for you. He's not against you. He's the God who can do the impossible. He's a God of miracles. So I want to end with this one question. Would you like to give your life to Jesus? Would you like to be forgiven? Would you like to know that beyond the shadow of a doubt, when you leave this world and die, that you will go to be with him in heaven? There is a great misconception out there. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Someone told me about that tree when, when I was younger that you could throw in the water. And they told me that Jesus died for me. And I gave my heart to Christ. And it's the best decision that I've ever made and I want that so badly for you. So if you wouldn't mind, please just bow your head with me and close your eyes and all of us praying, um, considering where am I with God and would I like to get right with Him? Do I sense His Spirit calling me to Him right now? Not condemning me, but offering me hope, offering me life, convicting me of my sins so that He could forgive them? And if you're here in person or you're engaging at church online, I want to give you uh, an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to pray with you and if you would like to experience living water like a river coming through you, I want you to pray this prayer with me out loud to God. And I'm going to ask our Into One Church family to pray with me also to show that we're standing with you. Proud to be a family to you. So say this to God. Say it out loud from your heart. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself, but I believe you can. I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. Come into my life. Make me new. I give myself to you. Help me walk with you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, th thanks so much for uh, joining us for episode one of Swipe Right. And if today you made a decision to give your life to Christ, we just want to say congratulations. Um, if you're church online, you can click on the I commit my life to Jesus button in the chat feed. If you're here with us, church on Main Street, can you just come up to me when we're done here? I just want to greet you in Jesus' name. And I want you to know that I, I want to get you connected so that you don't feel like this is an all on your own kind of thing. We want to help you connect with your family. Thanks so much for engaging with us today.